This episode is brought to you by Precisely, the CLM platform setting a new standard for digital contracting. For more info, go to precisely.contracts.com slash LDB. Welcome back to Legal Design Podcast. This marks the start of season four. Today, we talk to amazing Hallie J. Pope, who is a legal information designer, cartoonist, and educator, running her legal knowledge nonprofit, The Graphic Advocacy Project, and the Creative Advocacy Lab at the University of Utah, S.J. Quinney College of Law. With Hallie, we focus on the importance of making legal information available and understandable. Hallie tells us how cartoons and other ways of visualization can help people access their rights. She also explains the threats and opportunities of using visuals in legal communication. We also hear a positive development Hallie has recently noticed inside the legal design movement. Tune in to hear more. Welcome to Legal Design Podcast, Hallie. You have had a unique career path in law and legal design, and you title yourself not just as a lawyer and a legal information designer, but also as a cartoonist. We would love to hear the whole story, how, it's, how it all started with legal design and how's it going at the moment. Thank you so much, Hannah and Nina. First of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I am so, so excited to talk with you. Um, yes, so I have the, the best job title in the world, um, but I absolutely did not know I was going to have this title. Um, I always loved cartooning and art when I was younger. I was a big Calvin and Hobbes fan growing up, but I never thought it would be a part of my career. Um, and I knew starting in high school that I really wanted to do Uh, civil rights litigation. I wanted to go to law school. And so I was very much on that path. Um, But when I got to law school, I was drawing cartoons kind of as a way to cope with being a law student. Uh, So one year I would draw silly cartoons about our classes for my classmates uh, to try and sort of lighten the emotional burden of (laughs) one L year. We all know how tough that is. Um, But again, it was something I was doing for fun. Uh, Until my 3L year, um, there was a professor uh, at Harvard Law School when I was there, he's still there, Professor Jim Greiner, um, and he was starting an initiative to create self-help materials for folks who were navigating financial distress. Um, And he's big into interdisciplinary approaches to law and access to justice, so he did his research. um, And he found something very interesting that would end up shaping my career, which is that um, Images and words together are just an incredibly powerful way to not only convey concepts clearly, but also to help people navigate emotional hurdles of difficult situations. Mm -hmm. So he did this research and he found, oh, okay, so cartoons along with words um, will actually help folks to navigate financial distress, to show up when a debt collector is failing them into court um, and to successfully avoid default judgment. And so he put out a call for an artistic research assistant. um, And like seven of my friends sent it to me right away because they knew that I drew cartoons and also was interested in access to justice. And I immediately applied. I was so excited. I nervously waited to find out if I had gotten the research assistant position. To this day, I still don't know if anyone else actually applied for it, but I did get it. Um, I hope there were other cartoonists at my law school. I don't actually 
actually know. Um, and so I spent uh, the rest of my time in law school uh, working on this project, designing cartoons for these self-help materials with Professor Greiner and his team, um, which was amazing. This is where I designed uh, the cartoon character Blob, who's still sort of out in the world being used by ac access to justice advocates. Um, but I still didn't think this was going to be part of my career. And so I graduated and I went and I clerked and I was still just like, all right, I'm going to go be a lawyer. Um, but meanwhile, Professor Greiner was going around showing uh, their work to folks and he was saying, Hallie, you know, people are excited about this idea of, of visualizing legal information. Um, you should be doing this as, as your job. And I was like, no, 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 I am, I'm, not, I'm not an entrepreneur. I don't want to do my own thing. I also really loved being a lawyer, so I was happy with my career. Um, but, I, but I kept thinking about it and, and how it was sort of like this really special opportunity to bring uh, my distinct skill set to bear on, on social justice problems. Um, so when the time came for me to apply for a fellowship after my clerkship, I thought, all right, what, what can the harm be? Maybe I'll just pitch this idea. Um, I was applying for a fellowship at the ACLU of Massachusetts, and I said to them, hey, I'll be mostly uh, a, a litigation fellow, um, but then with like 30% of my time, I'll be a legal cartoonist, and I'll draw cartoons um, about the work that the ACLU is doing, uh, and I sort of thought this was just a total curveball, but they understood it immediately. They saw the potential for visual storytelling for their advocacy right away. Uh, so for a year, I was a legal fellow slash cartoonist at the ACLU of Massachusetts. Wow. And so after that, it was just, yeah, I mean, that that was to, to, to this date my best job title for sure. <laughs> um, but that sort of allowed me to um, realize that, yeah, this sort of skill set, um, visualizing legal information uh, was something that I love to do and also something that was needed. Uh, and so... After that fellowship ended, I ended up founding my nonprofit, the Graphic Advocacy Project, and I have been doing legal information design and cartooning uh, legal concepts ever since. Thanks for the story, Hallie. I love these all becoming stories because, yeah. I mean, it gives an idea for all these struggling law students and lawyers that there is something else out there. And there is so many things that we can do with law decrees. Yes, it's like a superhero origin story, and everyone exactly. can have one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, Hallie, you already mentioned that you're currently working with Creative Advocacy Lab at the University of Utah. Uh, I think, um, was it last fall when you found the lab? We would love to hear more about this venture. Yes. So it's hard for me to believe that a year ago I hadn't actually started this work. So I'm coming up on one year at the University of Utah. Um, this was an incredible miracle in my life, the way this job came around. Um, from the Utah side, uh, basically the, the University of Utah got this donation from a couple, Mike and Burgundy Caldwell, uh, who really wanted to encourage innovation in the access to justice space. And so as part of a very generous donation that they gave, um, the law school was able to post a position for an innovative access to justice clinic at the law school. Uh, now, I didn't know any of this. I was, I was just independently starting to come to this realization uh, that I really wanted to teach. Um, I have loved the work that I've done at the Graphic Advocacy Project. It's so fulfilling. Um, but one missing piece of the puzzle, I think, has been being able to interact with 
people who aren't yet lawyers, people who maybe are a little less set in our lawyerly ways um, and starting to, to think with them about how we can make information more accessible to folks who aren't lawyers. And of course, a lot of inspiration for this came from attending the Legal Design Summit in 2019, where I got to interact with folks from innovative labs all across the, the world. But I, I thought it was especially interesting. I was there representing GAP, my nonprofit, and I think I was one of the few people from the U.S. who weren't at a university. Um, you know, there were folks from the new law lab at Northeastern, uh, Stacey Butler from Innovation for Justice, uh, Kat Moon from the Vander Vanderbilt uh, Program on Law and Innovation, of course, Margaret Hagen and the whole Stanford Legal Design Lab. And I was just like, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder what they know that I don't. Um, and so I was sort of starting to realize, wow, this, this could be a really fruitful context for exploring um, information design in the legal world uh, with, with, with people who are going to be lawyers and who are going to hold all this power and might be able to relinquish some of it. Um, but, but I think what I am bringing to the table that's maybe a little bit different uh, is my, my teeny tiny focus on you know, that little top of the pyramid of the design outputs, which is information design. So I, I think that the Creative Advocacy Lab might be the only lab that is focused specifically on legal information design um, and also focused on doing legal information design and designing resources using participatory methods and community co-design. Uh, so that is what I have been working on this past year and for the next two years. Um, I have a visiting term for three years. Our first year, um, our first project, we partnered with a whole bunch of librarians, my favorite people in the world. So we had mm -hmm. law librarians at the law school. We had librarians at the courthouse. We had uh, Salt Lake City librarians in Utah. They had come up with this project where they were like, wow, self-represented litigants need all this information and they have no way to get it. What if we made some short digestible videos uh, about common questions? And then I got hired and they were like, hey, we're doing this thing already. Can you come work on this? And I was like, oh my gosh, thank goodness. This is perfect. So wow. that was, yeah, I mean, again, like just total, total kismet. Um, so that was our, our first project. Um, and so we're, and it's ongoing and it's called the Researcher Rights Project and, and the law library is really spearheading that. Last semester, we got to partner with uh, the International Rescue Committee in Utah to design resources with our immigrant and refugee communities about how to interact in, uh, with law enforcement. Um, one big problem that comes up uh, for those communities is language barriers. And so trying to address that and the whole host of other issues that, that come up in these interactions. And so that's also ongoing. And then in just two weeks, I will start my third semester and we'll be partnering with a youth homeless shelter in Salt Lake City. Um, and I don't know what those resources will be about, which is really exciting because we're gonna get to go in um, and talk to the clients of the shelter and find out what kinds of legal information they wanna learn. So that's sort of the, the heart of the idea of the Creative Advocacy Project, or Creative Advocacy Lab, um, mm -hmm. identifying these gaps in legal information with communities that are uh, systemically marginalized by and excluded from the legal system and hearing from them, hey, what do, you, what do you need to learn? How do you best learn that? How can we shift this knowledge and thereby shift power to you so you can build the power you need to affect change in our legal system? Mm -hmm. Hey, Hallie, uh, from your point of view, is it easy to get students um, enthusiastic about the new ways of working or are they still 
wanting more about the traditional classes and more of the traditional lawyering work? Yeah, it's a great question. And I can, of course, only speak to my little microcosm in Utah, but <laughs> I have just been blown away um, by the student enthusiasm. Um, so my, my lab is by application and we're really tiny. I only accept six students per semester. Um, and so far every semester, I've just gotten like three, two or three times as many applications as I have spots. Um, they're so excited to get a chance to break outside of the traditional modes of thinking. What I will say is that they come in, they're really enthusiastic. Um, and then I think, you know, the discomfort hits them. <laughs> they're like, oh my gosh, what have I done? Who is this <laughs> lady making me draw stuff every day? Um, and, you know, I, I try to sort of prepare them for that. Part of the application is draw a two minute mm -hmm. self-portrait so they know what's coming. Ah, oh, that's great. Um, wow. Yeah, just to make sure that they're willing to sort of enter that zone of discomfort. And, and you yeah. know, we, we really prize failure in design, of course. So the, getting them used to the idea that it's okay to not create something perfect right away. Um, but still, you know, so they're very enthusiastic. They know that's coming, they come in and it really is different for them. And, it, and it's just a lot of um, living in this, these gray areas, sort of having to abandon a sense of certainty that I think is encouraged in their other classes. And I have had students tell me that they've, they've struggled with that at the beginning of the semester, sort of accepting that we don't know where the project's going to go because we are not the decision makers. We are here to facilitate um, the community's process and, and learn from them. And so there's a lot of unknowns and that can be deeply uncomfortable for all, for all of us. I, I'm certainly including myself. It's scary for me at the beginning of every project, but also scary for my students. Um, but it is amazing to see them overcome that, that discomfort. And, and so far um, they have all really enjoyed it. And some of them even like to stick around for a second semester. So um, I do think there is a hunger uh, in, in new and future lawyers. Um, they recognize that the way we've been doing things isn't working and, and they really want to explore new ways uh, of tackling social justice legal problems. This episode is brought to you by Precisely, the contract management lifecycle tool helping enterprises to scale their contracting in a sustainable way. Precisely automates every aspect of your contracting workflow so a legal professional like you will be able to focus on making better decisions and leaving the office on time. Let's talk more about legal information and cartoons. The whole cartoon thing is Yay. so interesting. <laughs> My favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> Perfect. Um, Hallie, I read one of your interviews where you said that one of your goals is to democratize legal information. And I think that's brilliant. And um, then I was reading uh, a book by Mark Galanter, and he has stated that law works by information transfer and by communication of what's expected and what is forbidden, what's allowable, and what are the consequences of certain actions. But... Um, I think it seems that even the strong justice systems, such as, let's say, Finland, for example, seem to have trouble with access to legal information and therefore information transfer. And um, the lack of access to legal information can have an impact even on the big things like democracy. And that's a little scary. 
Um, So what do you think, how do we make the decision makers understand how vital access to legal information is to justice systems and what steps could societies take to start the journey towards democratizing legal information? Yeah, this is, this question has a lot of parts. I want to make sure I can (laughs) organize my thoughts a little bit. I mean, the the Gallanter point about, um, you know, what's expected, what's forbidden, Um, what are the consequences that I think is, is one of the first things that people think about when they think about law, right? This set of rules and norms. Um, and, and one of the central problems is how do we get people to actually follow the rules and norms? They have to understand it first. And so I think that's what he's talking about. And it is this really, um, important piece of the puzzle, but interesting, but I actually, I'm not concerned with that piece of the puzzle basically at all, which is sort of funny, um, because, I am concerned with, um, well, let's put it this way. That is what I would be concerned with in a system that I felt were just at, yeah. at a basic level, right? How do we actually, so we have, we have an equitable system. We have an equitable distribution of resources. We have a democracy. We've agreed on some norms. And how do we make sure that everyone can follow those norms and that we can live together? And unfortunately, that is not the society that I live in here in the United States. Um, yeah. And so I, my, the question as I'm posing it, the information transfer I'm more concerned about is, how do we um, help people to understand how to use the law as a tool? Um, you know, repeat players in the court are very familiar with the law and are using it to preserve the status quo. Can we use that tool? Can we use that information for folks who are not repeat players, who are disadvantaged by the legal system um, as a tool? And then I think maybe even more importantly, um, or maybe more luxuriously, because that's really harm mitigation there is sort of helping folks to, to navigate these necessary interactions with the legal system that are often not voluntary and trying to use it to their advantage. But then also communicating about the fact that the way the law is now is not actually inevitable uh, and it could look really different. Um, and, and it's one tool of many in, in changing it. Um, so, so that's sort of what, what I like to think about of, um, in terms of information sharing is not so much how do we communicate the expectations, but how do we subvert the expectations? How do we um, use what exists for, to build power for our own to ultimately change those expectations entirely? Um, and so the, the question of um, you know, making decision make, how, how do we help decision makers understand? Um, I'm not sure I'm the right person to, to answer that question because I, I don't often find myself uh, pitching my ideas to decision makers, I'm, I'm mostly working. Um, well, that's not entirely true because we partner with <laughs> with all sorts of advocates, and and so there are nonprofits and advocates who need to be convinced of this idea. Um, but but I'm generally working with folks who are doing the work on the ground, and and to them it is just it couldn't be more plain uh, that they need this sort of thing because they yeah. have been butting up against a brick wall over and over and over again with some small victories with you know chips in the in the um in the facade there's so much great work being done um but for folks especially doing direct legal representation there's just this endless flood um of problems uh and they're all connected to these deeper problems so the way that they're sort of manifesting in a given legal proceeding is is one thing and and protecting that one person who you know, is being evicted or is going to lose custody over their child is incredibly important. And it's linked to this huge bottom of the iceberg where all of these things are systemic. 
Um, and the lawyers doing that work on the ground, I think, are just craving, like my students, craving a way to tackle this that's different. Um, and so they uh, they have not needed convincing. It's really funny when I when I started my nonprofit, the Graphic Advocacy Project, I was like, oh my gosh, no one is going to want to work with me. How am I going to convince people uh, that we can use cartoons? Um, and, and as my story about, you know, the ACLU of Massachusetts hiring me shows, I was just totally wrong about that. I underestimated people. Um, they all did understand it. Uh, I will say that um, any skepticism about um, sort of legal information does tend to come from the lawyers and not the users, right? Mm -hmm. The users are, are very much on board. Um, so I do think that's an interesting thing, but but just sort of like an ex, I, I mean, I guess what I, what I wanna say about this also is that information design is not inherently aimed at any particular goal. And so I wanna sort of be careful about defining my goal. Um, an example, I guess, is, is, is the, let's take the eviction example. So, you know, the United States is in the midst of a massive housing crisis. Um, rent is increasing everywhere. Folks are unhoused, homelessness uh, issues are, homelessness rates are rising. Um, and of course the pandemic made all of this much worse. Um, and so I, I worked on a project right at the start of the pandemic in April, 2020 um, with the Community Justice Project in Miami. Um, a wonderful community lawyering organization who saw that their members were struggling to understand our eviction moratorium. So, right, we passed these relief measures that basically said, okay, landlords, you, you can't evict people for a little while. And so I came on board. We, we were going to design some resources to help people understand um, how those moratoriums worked and, and what they needed to do um, to avoid getting evicted. Um, and so there were there you could hear that project and you could think there might be a lot of ways to approach it. So I think the gallanter idea um, of communicating what's expected, what's forbidden would sort of focus on just here are the rules. Here's how you follow them. Here's how you don't get evicted. Um, uh, this is this is what it is. Um, and this is what you can do within this system. Um, and then I think one once taking that a little step further is adding sort of the power analysis to it and saying, okay, we are working with and on behalf of tenants who are a marginalized group in our legal system. Um, and so we don't want to just tell them how it is because how it is generally yeah. work in their favor. We want to, we want to really arm them. This is like, this is, this is war. We want to give them weapons, law is a weapon to use against their landlords to stay in their houses. And so we're not going to present what I think often gets mistermed as the neutral view of the law, which of course is not neutral. It's the status quo preserving view of the law. We're going to, we're, we're here to help the tenants, not the landlords. So we're going to give them the information that, that most advantages them. And then you can take it one step further than that. And the community justice project did do this. And you can say, all right, we're going to give these tenants what they need to stay in their houses. But we're also going to recognize that each of their individual struggles is intertwined. And in order to attack this massive problem of housing injustice, um, we're going to have to organize. We're going to have to build power in our communities. And so these resources um, not only gave information about the eviction moratoriums, they also gave people information about local tenant organizing so that they could join up with a tenants union or with an ongoing coalition fighting for housing justice uh, to sort of, so this was like a gateway 
um, for them into that kind of political organizing. And so I think that's, that's the kind of information transfer uh, that I am really interested in. And that's what I mean by democratizing legal information um, because information is not sort of a, um, a set certain thing, right? It can be conveyed in so many different ways. And, and so it, what your agenda is determines how you convey it. And that's my agenda is to, to build that power in those communities to, to, in, to help facilitate um, their struggles for justice. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we'd like to hear more about the Graphic Advocacy Project. Uh, who is it for and how does it work? Oh, Gap, my poor neglected <laughs> baby. I feel I feel very guilty right now because, you know, I'm doing this, this professorship. And so Gap is sort of <laughs> on hiatus right now a little bit, um, which is which is tough for me, but I think ultimately a good thing. So so Gap is a nonprofit. Um, the idea behind it was to bring this interdisciplinary approach, bring these creative tools to people engaged in social justice legal advocacy. Um, to sort of fill in some gaps, right? Um, hence the hence the acronym GAP. It really works out. Um, yeah, <laughs> perfect. There, there, there's so much incredible work going on in the advocacy world, and and I think it was really important to me not to duplicate any of that work and just think about you know what am I actually bringing to the table here, and and that's my my weird cartooning and design skills. So I was like, all right, how can I sort of use this as like a secret ingredient to power up work that's already going on? Um, And so the idea was that GAP would partner with um, advocacy organizations and the communities they were working alongside to design legal information and resources. Um, And at first, uh, I was just doing this um, with, you know, I, I would get contacted by an advocacy organization. They'd say, hey, we need to explain uh, voter ID laws to um, our constituents. I'd be like, great, I know how to do that and I'll draw a cartoon and here we go. Um, and I think, I think that, that you know, was somewhat successful. I, I think that was um, better than not having these clear explainers. Um, but, but since then, GAP has really shifted its focus to trying to design these resources uh, with communities and not just mm-hmm. with advocates. Um, my, my colleague at GAP, Ashley Trainey, who is a, a incredible civic designer and, and co-design expert, um, she and I met in, I think, 2019. And she was like, hey, have you thought about, you know, um, hearing from the folks that you're making these resources for and making them a part of the process? And it sounds so obvious now, but, but at the time it was this huge epiphany for me. I was like, of course, because, hey, I'm a lawyer and it hadn't occurred to me that I should be uh, working with the folks who are actually going to be using what I was creating. Um, so we've shifted towards more of a, a participatory model in recent years. Um, the biggest, the big project we just wrapped up um, about a little less or about a year ago was with the Michigan, Michigan Advocacy Program. And the goal of that was to actually increase the justice community's um, facility with this idea of user-informed and community-informed legal design. So um, we ran a bunch of training, 10-week training courses. We did workshops. We created a report resources so that the people who are doing this work, who are hungry for these um, more creative tools can sort of start to access that. Um, I've always said that uh, in my ideal world, GAP will just become obsolete because 
lawyers will just have these these tools and they won't need someone like me um, to do it. So I, I don't know that we're quite there yet, although Gab is, <laughs> is kind of, we'll see how it goes. Gab's just sort of hanging out in the sidelines right now. Um, but one thing that I've really struggled with is that I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm not, I don't think of myself as an entrepreneur. I think you all have had all these folks on this podcast um, who really are true entrepreneurs and, and crave starting something new and building something. And it makes sense because legal design is an innovative uh, endeavor and I'm just not that person. So I've, I've really struggled to um, embrace my role as a, a founder. Um, but on the other hand, that does sort of lend itself to taking a sort of slower, more intentional mindset about what I'm building. And so I really appreciate this conversation because I mean, the honest answer about Gap right now is I don't really know what, what mm -hmm. the next thing is gonna be. Um, and I really wanna take the time to think about how Gap um, and what we've sort of this little scrappy organization that we've built, how it can sort of best continue to fill in those gaps in the justice community. Yeah, but there's definitely a demand for such projects. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, if we talk about comics as a form to convey legal information, uh, we know that it can be very uh, powerful and have a great impact on the people who are not familiar with the traditional ways of, uh, of, of receiving legal information. Um, but from your perspective, have you come up with any challenges of, of using cartoons in, in the legal context? What are the threats and opportunities of comics or legal comics? Yeah, um, you know, my first reaction to any project is that it'll be made better with visuals. And I think there is some, um, there's some truth to that, right? There's this idea of the pictorial superiority phenomenon, basically just psychologically, our brain really loves visuals. We like to have them. Mm -hmm. But, but I do think there is this attendant um, kind of risk that you are now presenting information in a new way and, and you're doing it in a way that's maybe a little less explicit than words or can be. Um, so one example that I give is um, character design in comics. Um, you know, if you say, yeah. if you, so, so I did a, I did a, um, I did a comic about um, a, a multi-stakeholder cooperative. Um, so basically, you know, a grocery store that was owned by its workers and by the community. And we were trying to explain what the concept of multi-stakeholder cooperative is because you read that phrase and you want to die, or at least I do. <laughs> like, this is, what does this mean? We need some cartoons in here. Um, and I was, I was working with a great group called Co-op Dayton um, in Ohio to create this comic to explain what it was. Um, and so you can say the words, a multi-stakeholder co-op is a grocery store that is owned by its workers and community members, right? And so you can say that. And then you can add visuals to that. And as soon as you add visuals, what you're probably doing, or if you're me, what you're definitely doing is adding images of people or people like, you know, something that resembles people. I don't want to say that all my cartoons are particularly uh, technically accurate in terms of anatomy, but they're, they're human beings. Um, and as soon as you do that, you're adding new information that actually isn't present in the words because now the person looking at this is seeing those human beings and, and making some assumptions about them and who they are. Um, and so one 
thing that we talk about in my class and one thing that I, that I always struggle with is this idea that images, just like words, can perpetuate dominant narratives in society. Yeah. Um, stereotypes or ideas about what roles people are playing, who's involved in something. Um, and so I made this mistake with this project. The first design that I did, um, I designed these characters um, and they were all purple and green and like jewel tones. They look very cute, just this like multiracial fantasy. And I turned it in and, and co-op Dayton, they were on it. Uh, they said, they said, look, uh, we love this comic, but um, our community is black and brown people primarily. And, and we think it's important to, to show that and your jewel tone characters are not reflecting that. Um, and sort of uh, diminishing um, the, the agency and the power that this community has. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, totally right. I felt like an idiot. Um, and so I redesigned the characters to, to reflect that. Um, but it was such an important lesson for me and one I continue to, to have to learn um, that there is all this extra information in images, that images are not automatically clarifying. They can obscure just as words can. Um, and they can perpetuate the status quo just as words can. The fact that they're creative is not inherently something that is radical or challenging systems. Uh, so I think that is a trap that I am constantly trying to avoid, <laughs> sometimes maybe with more success than, than other times, but, but a constant learning process. Mm. Thank you, Hallie. Um, it's time to wrap up our very fruitful and interesting conversation and ask the last question. Uh, Hallie, through your work, you have been able to follow closely the development of the legal design movement, what's happening inside your circles. Uh, Have you recently spotted something new in in the development of the legal design thing, something that has perhaps surprised you or made you particularly happy? And what do you wish to happen next in legal design? Uh Oh what gosh. is missing? <laughs> well, I'm going to preface this by saying that I am just, I, I think I'm so oblivious because every time I go to a conference, I'm learning of like a million new things that surprise me and make me happy. So I think I'm just not doing a good job of keeping up with all the amazing work. Um, but one incredible thing that just happened uh, in July was uh, that I was able to attend the Design Research Society Conference um, in Bilbao, Spain, mm-hmm. where, yeah, um, yeah so the, the, that's, you know, this huge design conference, international conference, um, and the new law lab at Northeastern had curated a theme track for this conference called What Legal Design Could Be. Um, and so there were, there were kind of two amazing things about, about this gathering. One was that this theme track, despite being about legal design, was not just lawyers. Hallelujah. Um, there wow. were a bunch of folks who were presenting who were designers coming at law from the Yay! design perspective. That's great. Yes, <laughs> yay, exactly. It was so exciting. We were all talking about it all week because we were so excited to not just have lawyers in the room. Um, you know, th- those folks are, are kind of few and far between still in our world. Or And I think this is partly because lawyers think we're special and think we can do everything. And, and certainly here I am coming in with no design training doing it. Um, I don't wanna say that you know design should be a f- formalized and only people with design training can do design, absolutely not. But it is so exciting to have those folks in the room who have really made this their craft um, and are coming at it from a totally different perspective than lawyers. And then the other super exciting thing about the theme track was that it was actually, it was this critical lens, right? Not what legal design is, what could it be? 
Um, how do we sort of approach this through, through critique and inquiry and push up against uh, what we perceive as kind of the boundaries of this new field? Because it is so new and the possibilities are endless and it would be so tragic if we are allowed ourselves to just get confined the same way that much of the legal profession is confined. Um, so it was very, very exciting to be a part of that theme track and I'm so grateful to New Law Lab for organizing. Um, and then what do I what do I wish will happen next? Well, um, at the conference, uh, I presented a paper about radical imagination in law. Um, basically just this idea of um, allowing ourselves to, to dream about positive outcomes. Um, you know, we, we spend a lot of time as lawyers thinking about what's going wrong, what could go wrong, how do we stop the things from going wrong? And that's really important. We have, we have a lot of things going wrong and we, we need to think about that. But the flip side of that is we're not necessarily, or I at least have not had a lot of spaces where I could really take the time to fully give myself into the idea that things might go right. And what does that world look like? Um, and that's so necessary for us to, to push the boundaries of legal design, to think about what could be, is to let ourselves experience that joy, that play, that silliness, um, which sounds maybe kind of dumb, but, but you know, there's all these scientific studies about how being playful, being silly are really important for our creativity. They're important for helping us emotionally sustain difficult work. Uh, and they're crucial for, for building relationships in the communities that we need to do truly transformative work. So I think that's, that's what I hope for. Um, it sounds trite, but I, I hope legal designers will really let themselves dream and dream big and question the way things are and, and get playful with ideas of other possible worlds because they're gonna be better than this one. Yeah. Thank you for visiting us, Hallie. This was so great to hear hear what, you, what you've been doing uh, lately and, and also uh, your vision for legal design. Uh, it's a great honor and joy to share your thoughts through this podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was so great. And I'm a huge fan of the podcast and I can't wait to see who you all talk to next. Thanks, Hallie. This was such a great way to kick off the new season. We've managed to talk about legal theory. There's cartoons, there's bitter <laughs> world. So great way to start the season. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Legal Design Podcast. This episode is sponsored by Precisely Contract Lifecycle Management Tool. Precisely has a special offer for Legal Design Podcast listeners. Go to preciselycontracts.com slash LDP and get a free assessment of the state of your contracting and tips on how to automate your contracts. <laughs>